Good morning, Highland Community Church. Glad you have joined us for worship. Some of you well know 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive them of their sin and I will heal their land. It's a call, which actually parallels today's text, that we are called as Christ followers to constantly evaluate where we have sinned against the Lord, confess, agree with God, repent, turn from our sin. If we want our land healed, as we all do, it starts with us according to Scripture. And so many church leaders have said, let's, on September 27th, Let's call upon our church for confession and repentance. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 12, which is all about this idea of confession and repentance, agreeing with God. Will you bow with me in an opening word of prayer? Father God, we ask that you would Guide our time as we look at your inspired and errant word. Take your truths, take your word, apply it to our lives. And Father, where we as individuals, as a church community, as a faith community across the land have sinned, forgive us. We have not been as faithful as we ought. We have been tempted by a plethora of sins. Father, forgive us. Draw us into a right relationship with you. Father, we pray for our land, which is reeling in many ways. And we ask, Lord, that we, the church, would get right with you and that you would be gracious, so gracious, to heal our land. And Father, as we look at 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, 1 to 12, speak to us through your inspired, inerrant word. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Some of you may have heard the name Saladin. If you don't know who Saladin is, it's because we are Christ followers living in the West. But if we were Muslims, living in the East, in the Middle East, we would know Saladin. Saladin, in many ways, is the Muslim George Washington. Now, Saladin is an individual that when I take groups to Israel, I often lecture on Saladin because he's instrumental in the period of the Crusades from the 11th to the 13th century, and many of the biblical sites that we visit have churches and buildings built by the Crusaders and sometimes occupied by Saladin and his Muslim army. And so he's a major figure in that part of the world. Now, Saladin was a commoner. His uncle was a general who trained him to be an exquisite warrior. And Saladin, as a commoner, moved up the ranks until he became the sultan of Egypt. Then there's about seven years 
where revisionist historians try and ignore. Because what Saladin did, having become the Sultan of Egypt, is he unified the Muslim world. And by unifying the Muslim world, he spilled the blood of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Muslims. He unified them with force. Having unified the Muslim world for the first time in 70 years, Saladin then marched against Jerusalem. You remember from the 11th to 13th century, there were eight major crusades. Europeans came, they took over the Holy Land, and they set up the kingdom of Jerusalem. And what was so offensive to the Muslim world is in Jerusalem, you have the Temple Mount, and on the Temple Mount since 691, you have the Dome on the Rock. The Dome on the Rock is a mashad. It's not technically a temple. It's a pilgrimage. It's the third holiest site in the Muslim world. And so what was happening is that the Crusaders had taken over Jerusalem, and at least for a 20-year period, they set up their headquarters for the Christian Crusades in the Dome on the Rock, which was an offense to Muslims the world over. And so there was the desire by Islam to retake Jerusalem. Now, I don't want us to have an incorrect, unhistorical view of the Crusades. It is a dark period in Christianity. It is a dark period in Islam for sure. Crusaders had terrible theology. It was steeped in indulgences and a false place called purgatory and the veneration of relics. It was an arrogance and it was a brutal time period. So about the time of Saladin, the ruler of the kingdom of Jerusalem, the crusader kingdom, was a guy named Guy. And he had a lot of knights, about 1,200 knights, and he had a fairly large army, about 20,000. And if you've been to Jerusalem today, you know the old city is walled in. That wall existed in the kingdom of Jerusalem in the time of Guy. And Saladin, with a very large army, could not penetrate that wall. So Saladin realized that he would never take Jerusalem as long as Guy and his army remained in the four walls. So knowing that Guy was superstitious and was this guy who didn't take heed lest he fall, very prideful man, Saladin essentially tricked Guy to bringing out his 1,200 knights and his 20,000 army and to meet Saladin about 30 or so miles north in the Galilee. The Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, is not a sea. It's uh, fresh water. It's the largest freshwater body of water in the Middle East. And so we're in the Middle East. It's hot. All of Guy's armies are wearing heavy armor. And as they march towards Tiberias to the Sea of Galilee, they go past Tehran, which is the only place they could get water. But rather than water the horses and fill up their canteens, Guy said, you know what? God is on our side because he had this relic. This relic was called the cross, the original cross. It's a small little relic. It's owned by the Greek Orthodox Church. And it's purportedly 
made from wood that Jesus hung on, found by Emperor Constantine's mother, Helena, in 326. And he had this cross and he believed in relics, the veneration of relics. And with his soldiers and with his knights and with the cross, he was going to win. He didn't even need water. And so he marched by the only source of water short of the Galilee. And Saladin knew that all was lost for the Crusades. <laughs> you don't walk by water in the Middle East. And so he set fires all along the way and all during the day and even the night, the, the hotness of the Middle East and now the fires and, and guys, soldiers were utterly parched by morning. And then they faced a barrage of arrows from Saladin's army and they were soundly defeated. And Saladin then murdered every knight that was captured and treated the regular army fairly well. And the second crusade was the loss of Jerusalem. Now that would be recovered again a little bit later, at least partially so with Richard the Lionheart, who actually has nothing to do with Robin Hood, and Barbosa in the third crusade. But what happened in the second crusade? They didn't take heed. They didn't honor God. They venerated a relic. They put their confidence in themselves and they fell. That's the text today. The text is honoring God, thanking God, being filled with grace towards God, and not being filled with self, and not being confident in self. I want to pick up and read to us from 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 12. Listen to God's word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, now, the period of time he's talking about is the Exodus. It's a time period when Moses is raised up and he goes to Pharaoh because all of the Jews are in bondage to Pharaoh. And he says, God says, let my people go. And in the power of God, he unleashes all of these plagues. Pharaoh will not let the Jews leave. They've been in bondage for years. But finally, the angel of death comes. The firstborn of all the Egyptians die. And Pharaoh says, get out of here. I've had enough of you Jews. That's the period of time which leads to the Egyptian army coming after them to bring them back into slavery and then the 40 years of wandering. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They depended upon themselves, not on God. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
The text is about overconfidence. It's about apathy. What was going on is the Jews thought, hey, we're God's chosen people. And because we're God's chosen people, we have God's blessing, God's favor upon us, true so far. And because of that, even if we sin, it's no big deal. We can presume upon God's grace because God will forgive us, we're his people. You remember that Paul interacted with that very thought, knowing that we who have Christ have assurance of salvation. The Holy Spirit is the down payment guaranteeing our future inheritance. And we too can become overconfident and presume upon grace. So you remember what Paul writes in Romans 6, 1 and 2. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. We who have died to sin shall now not rise to life. We, we need to stand firm against sin. We don't presume upon the grace of God. And yet that's exactly what happened in the text. Paul writes, I don't want you to be ignorant about what happened in the Old Testament because it has application to we New Testament saints. He said all of them were under the cloud. You remember that when the Jews left Egypt, when Pharaoh allowed them to go, God gave a huge cloud that protected them from the hot Middle Eastern sun and guided them to Yam Suf. Yam is the word for sea. Suf reads the Sea of Reeds, probably the Red Sea. God gave them this protection. God gave them this guidance. They should have said, praise God. They should have been filled with thanksgiving. They should have been filled with gratitude. But they're grumbling. They're complaining. Oh, you brought us out in Egypt so we can die in the wilderness. And they're not looking to the Lord. And all passed through the sea. You remember what God did when the Egyptians came to bring them back into captivity and the chariots were bearing down on them. God separated the Red Sea and they dry, walked on dry land. And when the pursuing army came, he brought the water back over, protecting them. And they should have praised God. And they should have thanked God. They should have trusted God. But they complain so much so that God will leave them in the wilderness for 40 years. Verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses. That's a phrase not found in the Old Testament. So it has garnered a little bit of discussion, but I think it's pretty clear what it means. It's talking about Moses as the mediator between God and the people. Moses would go on behalf of the people and talk to God, and then God would give a message from himself to the people. And mediator was, was important, but let's be honest, Moses was an incomplete mediator. Yet they grumbled. They had communication with God and that wasn't enough. They grumbled. We have the greatest mediator. We have Jesus Christ. We have been blessed. Our mediator went to the cross, paid the penalty of our sin, died and rose again, offering eternal life for all who believe in him. We have reason to praise God, to thank God, to glorify God. And then it goes on. They all ate the same spiritual food. You remember from... Exodus 13 to 20, while they're in the wilderness, God sent them daily quail, meat, and he sent them wafers called manna, from which they made manicotti and banana bread. I know, a bad dad joke. And, and he, he fed them, but they weren't in the Ritz. They were in the desert. They were nomads. We're not up north in the Galilee where you have apples and you have peaches and you have 
pineapples and green and yellow and red peppers and all of this food were down south where they've got rocks and stones and scorpions and snakes. But yet God is feeding them and they're still grumbling. And they all drank of the same spiritual drink. So they get to a place called Mara in Exodus 15. The water is bitter and God makes it pure and two million and all of their flocks drink. And then twice in in Exodus 17 and in Numbers 20, God brings forth water from a rock. It is Jesus Christ who provides water for all these people. So many miracles, so many reasons to be filled with thanksgiving. Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them, God was not pleased and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Even that was grace. Did God immediately strike them all dead? No, he didn't. He gave them 40 years before only two men, Joshua and Caleb, from that era goes into the promised land. They grumbled, they complained, God provided miracles. They grumbled, they complained, God provided miracles. They grumbled, they complained, God provided miracles. And then he said, enough of this. All of you are going to die. And then he gave them 40 years and they died slowly. The point is this. They all received the blessings. The word all, pantes, is found five times in verse 4, 1 to 4. Five times. All of them, all of them, all of them, all of them, all of them received the blessing. And yet, rather than being thankful, praising God, being worshipful individuals, they began to grumble and complain. I get it. They weren't living in the lap of luxury. If you've been up north in the Galilee, it's a bread basket. They're down south. It's a lot of sand. It's a lot of rocks. There's a lot of scorpions. There's a lot of snakes. There's no greeneries. They're not out there in an oasis. That's not happening in their lives. They don't have the good stuff. But God's providing. God's faithful. They've got food. They've got meat. They've got wafers. They've got water. They've got God himself. And yet they complain. And I think this is the point, because the text says all these things happen that we may know, that we may learn. Yes, life is not going the way we want. Our country is railing, roiling. Our country is divided. We can't agree on elections. We can't agree on a virus. We can't agree on masks. We can't agree if an executive order is law or not. We are all over the map. Our country has not been this divided, in my opinion, since 1860 to 65, the Civil War. One guy's opinion. We are very divided. And it's a difficult time. And yet I want to remind myself that they were in the desert and rather than see the good, rather than see the blessing, rather than being worshipers, rather than, as 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, turn from our wicked ways, confess our sin, and repent, and then God hears, and then God forgives, and then God heals. They just railed against the Lord. And verse 5 says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. They thought God owed them. 
I think of Louis XIV. Louis XIV was France's greatest king. He's Europe's longest reigning monarch. He started to rule around age five or six, ruled for 72 years. He's called the Sun King because of the opulence of his court. He took France and made him the world power. But even he had occasional setbacks and in a small defeat on the Danube to England, he is reported to have said, how could you do this to me, God, after all I've done for you? And we say, whoa, decap, bro, that is not good. And yet it's possible that we have that same mentality. A child is rebellious and we're angry at God. Finances haven't gone the way we want. We're angry at God. We lose a job, angry at God. Marriage hasn't gone the way it should, angry at God. Life isn't going the way we want, and we're angry at God, and we're like Louis XIV. After all I've done for you, God, how could you do this to me? That seems to be the mentality of the Jews of which God says they were, in verse 6, an example to us that we might not desire evil as they did, I'm really struck by verse 6. It says it's an example to us and that how they acted is evil. I want to remind myself of this because sometimes things don't go the way I would like. Sometimes society is not acting as I, Jeff, think they ought. We ought. And the text says it was an example for us that we might not imitate the evil. We've got upcoming elections. I think we all ought to vote. I think we ought to express our opinions absolutely with grace. We ought to change our country absolutely with grace. But what we can't do is place our faith in the elections or our faith in ourselves, or be angry with God when things aren't going the way we want. The problem in the Old Testament text is that they railed against God, they failed to worship God, they failed to love God, they failed to act for God. Again, their situation wasn't the Ritz. They were nomads. They were living in a land of desert for 40 years. It was hot sun beating down on them. It was sand and rock and scorpion and snake. It was not a pleasant existence. And yet God expected even in that situation for them to praise God, for them to worship God, for them to keep their eyes on God. But instead of keeping their eyes on God, what does verses 7 and 9 said? They put their eyes on the Creator and they began to eat and they began to drink and they began to play. And there was sexual immorality and God took 23,000 of their lives. And I fear that this is true even in this time period in the United States. If what I hear in counseling is true and if what I hear statistically all across the country is true, during the last six or seven months, 
more Christ followers have drifted from the Lord than been drawn to him. Yes, many have come to Christ, praise the Lord, but many Christ followers have drifted from the Lord and they've drifted in their morality and they've begun to take on the morality of a culture rather than the morality of Christ. They're eating and they're drinking and they're sexually playing and God has given intimacy as a gift between a husband and wife only within a marriage relationship and our culture says no. In fact, our culture is calling evil what God calls good and they're calling good what God calls evil and that's what exactly what was happening And in verses 5, 6, and 11, God said, These things are written down that we may know how to act, that we do not imitate them. And then it concludes, Take heed, lest ye fall. In other words, consider all that God has taught, all that God has commanded, all that God demands in our life. Make that the priority. Take heed, Jeff, lest ye fall fall. As I think about the text, these are the things that cross my mind over and over again. I should work for what is right and good rather than accept what is evil in society. Take heed, Jeff, lest ye fall. I should not be a complainer and grumbler. While I should be real and realistic, about evil all around us and evil that I perpetrate and I need to confess and repent of that evil. I don't fall into grumbling and complaining against the Lord. Take heed, Jeff, lest ye fall. I should be known more as a worshiper of God, one who praises God, one who exalts God than a complainer about government or political parties or society or what I do or don't like, I shouldn't focus on those things. I should be focused on God. That doesn't mean I'm not here as a change agent in my culture. I am. doesn't mean I don't vote. I should. So should you. It doesn't mean I don't have a voice. I do, and I should use it with grace. But they became apathetic. They took on the things of evil. They grumbled and they complained. They stopped worshiping God. They stopped exalting God. And the text says, take heed, Jeff, lest ye fall. It says, take heed. We don't want to be a woke society. We want to be a biblically true, biblically true society. We've got to choose, as Joshua said, choose ye this day whom we will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 15 of Joshua 24. We will serve the Lord. My goal is not to be a woke Christian. My goal is to be a biblical Christ follower, a worshiper of the Lord, One who seeks after righteousness, seeks after the word of God, seeks after the Lord, who's not a complainer, not bitter, not angry, but who points to the Lord, serves the Lord, and does not embrace the evil of our society. If my people, 
who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. And they will turn from their wicked way and they will seek my face. Then I will hear from heaven. Then I will forgive their sin and then I will heal their land. It's appropriate that a number of churches are being called to repentance. That all Christ followers are called to repentance. Not because all the problems or even most of the problems, I don't know, I have no idea how to evaluate that. It's not because we're responsible for all the problems, that's not the issue. It's because as God's people, God expects so much more. And he expects us to keep short accounts with him. And he expects us to turn from our ways. And then his good pleasure falls upon us. And his good pleasure falls upon our land. Let's seek the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, it's amazing that all of these accounts that took place 3,200 years ago or so, maybe more, 3,500, I don't know, Lord. The text tells us they're for us. You've written them, you've recorded them, that we might not grumble, we might not complain, we might not be bitter, but we might be worshipers, that we might look to you, that we might not take in the winds of the culture, but take in the word of God and live it out for your glory and our betterment. Father, where we have failed, forgive us. We confess, we agree with you. Empower us by your spirit to turn from our sin, our wicked ways, to turn to you as we desperately need to do. We worship you, we praise you, we exalt you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.